Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm Sunshine Sinclair, and whether you be a casual commuter or the aviation aficionado, we here at BVR Productions sure hope that you enjoy our products as much as we enjoy producing them. Now, traditionally, Jello, the founder, leads the charge on all of these episodes. Unfortunately, and with a heavy heart, I'm here to announce that Jello recently lost his father, Bob, at the age of 93. While Jello takes a neon production and focuses on his family, we at BVR Productions are going to re-roll a two-part interview I conducted with one of our friends, Mike, over at Aircrew Interview. Aircrew Interview has been around since 2014 and has approximately 15,000 YouTube subscribers. Mike does a fantastic job of chronicling both military and civil pilots. So please enjoy and stay tuned because we'll be back in full swing on June 22nd for episode 50 where we showcase the last of the gunfighters and we have some pretty stunning stories about that tenacious titan during the Vietnam era. So Sunshine, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, so actually, Mike, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate that. And uh, back when I was eight, I got a book called Visions of the Universe, a series of illustrations about basically our solar system. And uh, some, it had some text written by Isaac Asimov from my uncle. I got the book from my aunt and uncle. And it just kind of energized me. And I really uh, loved space. And I wanted to be an astronaut. And I felt that a natural stepping stone to be an astronaut was to be a pilot. Wow. So what year did you join the U.S. Navy? Uh, I was sworn in, if you will, July 1st of 1993. It was a, uh, a rude awakening, I would say, definitely culture shock. Yeah, so uh, in high school, that's when I was making my decision because I applied to all three of our service, big service academies. That would be West Point for Army, Air Force, obviously, and Navy. I was blessed enough to be able to get into all three, and then I had my options. Uh, from there, listening to my parents, uh, my mom actually, so I grew up in Pennsylvania the Naval Academy is in Maryland. So the adjacent state, if you will. So she really enjoyed the proximity. She also really enjoyed the uniforms, believe it or not, the Navy uniforms <laughs> over the Air Force uniforms. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, those were some of the deciding factors, but then honestly I did my research and I thought, well, Hey, I want to be an astronaut. Which of the three major academies has the, the, the most amount of astronaut graduates? And at the time, it turned out to be the Naval Academy. So between my uh, research and wanting to be an astronaut and also my mom's druthers, as I would call them, uh, I chose Navy. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about some of the aircraft you started uh, your basic training on. What were they like and what did you actually train on? Yeah. So uh, I went through the Naval Academy, didn't fly anything. I had one flight in a Cessna, just a civilian uh, Cessna 172. It was very low threat, low stress. And then I stepped into flight school. And the first plane that we trained on was the T-34C Turbo Mentor. Ah, yes. Are you, are you familiar with that? Yes, I am, yeah. I got, yeah, I got the little beast right here, right? So anyway, just this little guy. So it's a low wing, as you can see. It's a turboprop. Uh, my life was pretty much going about maximum speed of 280 knots. So it wasn't really uh, – but going from car speed, trying to accelerate my, my thinking processes up to 280 knots is, is a big deal. So it was a nice gradual progression. I finished up primary training, as we call it, in VT-28 down in Corpus Christi, Texas. And from there, I headed off to Kingsville, Texas, and I flew the T-45C. Mm -hmm. So the T-45, it's a little slick, a little more slick jet. I got a quick demo. I'm sure your folks at home have seen this before. But anyway, one wow, of these we guys. We call it the Hawk. Exactly. Yeah, and we call it the Goss Hawk. Yeah, and we could, I'm sure we could ruminate on that for, for <laughs> eons, for oh, ages. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about this. But so we took your slick trainer, if you will, or your slick jet, excuse me. And then uh, 
as in cool jet, what I mean by that slick. And then we uh, turned it into our trainer. So it's a non after burning trainer for us. And my life went from max speed of about 280 knots to almost 550, 560 knots. So not quite double, but pretty darn close. So it was a a, difference, isn't it? it, It's a very big difference, man. And uh, one of the keys for me throughout flight school was they, they give us this mantra that we call it. So it's aviate, navigate and communicate. And to be able to balance and juggle and really prioritize all three of those successfully takes a lot of work. So imagine being a college student going from 60 to maybe 70, 80 miles an hour for me, and then from there jumping into 280, and then from there jumping into 550. So uh, it was it was a, a steep, I would call it, learning curve, but very enjoyable. So after your basic flight training, uh, where did you get posted to, and what aircraft did you actually want to go on to on the Frontline Squadrons? So uh, I am a product of the Top Gun era here in the United States. So as I went through the Naval Academy and flight school, I really wanted to fly the F-14. That opportunity, unfortunately, did not present itself. So I selected. I was selected for S-3s. Mm-hmm. So S-3s, I'll be honest with you, when I got the word, I didn't know what it was. And back there in 98, I'd, uh, we didn't have Google and all that stuff. Information wasn't as easy to get, so the Internet wasn't as big. So I actually had to ask around, like, uh, what is an S-3? Where will oh, I be really? and all that stuff? Yeah, and I had never been to San Diego, so when I uh, I'm going from Kingsville, Texas, which is kind of kind of sparse, I would say at best. It's a lot of uh, desertish areas, and then someone said, "Oh, you're going to San Diego." And growing up in Pennsylvania, I had barely been to California. I went to school in Maryland, didn't make it that far west, really. So when I found out I was going to San Diego and flying this plane I'd never heard of before, actually, my folks came in for graduation. And we went up to Houston, which is not too far from Kingsville, where I did my training. And I, uh, I bought a convertible Corvette to try to um, <laughs> console myself, I guess you could say. Yeah. So, so one of my first ever experiences of entering into the S3 community was actually driving my convertible Corvette from Texas to California, which was fun. Uh, so I'll be honest with you. It's a step down in performance. So mm-hmm. in the T-45, we can pull a whole lot of Gs. We can go, as we said earlier, about 550, 560 knots. The S3, though, is going to be limited to it, – it wasn't designed for that. So, you know, it's, it's a good design for its an original intent, and I can't complain about that. But we're looking at limited 450 and about 3.5 Gs. And we used to, and the thing has windshield wipers. So <laughs> I don't know if any other carrier-based uh, jets will say that have windshield wipers. So it's like, okay, so it's kind of slow. It's kind of big. And honestly, we used to joke that the uh, tinted canopies – or so that your friends couldn't see you flying the jet. So <laughs> good or bad, that's what we said. But um, in all in all honesty, just like pretty much every naval aviator, you grow to learn, or excuse me, you grow to love your aircraft. So I really grew into it, and I, I realized what it was designed for, and I enjoyed, most importantly, the people that were part of the community. So the jet is one thing, and it was kind of a step down from a T-45 or hoping to fly the F-14. But what I realized is, A, I now had orders to live in San Diego, I had no idea how fantastic San Diego was until I drove, no kidding, across the Coronado Bridge, top down in my convertible Corvette, and I thought, wow, yeah, that's where I'm going to train, and that's where I'm going to live. That's pretty cool, isn't it? (laughs) Dude, it's it's one of those things that I wasn't wise enough or mature enough to know all the different aspects of what I'll call quality of life, right? For me, you know, I was trained, I was focused on single-seat fighters, single-seat fighters, go, you know, knife in your teeth, get out there, drop bombs. And then I realized, oh, wait, you can have a fantastic quality of life, have less stress, and be around some fantastic people. So I 
that's the way I learned is by joining the S3 training squadron. Let's talk about the S3's role. What was it actually designed for? Yeah, so back in the 50s, the Navy was looking for a follow-on to the S2 tracker. It's an anti-submarine. And right about that time, the Russians had gone, you know, uh, at the time they were the, the big capital threat, we'll call them. But they had gone from their diesel submarine technology to their nuclear submarine technology, or it was emerging, we'll say. So what we needed is some kind of a anti-submarine warfare aircraft that had long range and also long lawyer times or max endurance, as we would call it. So Lockheed was looking for uh, looking at designs, if you will. But Lockheed at the time, they weren't terribly good with or very mature with carrier-based designs. Yeah, yeah. So they, right, so like folding, when I say carrier-based designs, I'm talking beefed up landing gear, beefed up structures to uh, endure the traps, if you will, of reinforced hook, uh, folding wings, folding tails, and all that stuff. So the, the basic general requirements to operate on the carrier. Anyway, they were not good at that stuff yet, so they brought in the uh, LTV, which is a Ling Temco Vought. They, LTV, they, uh, they built the A7s. They're known for the A7 Corsair. So Lockheed said, hey, guys, can you help us out kind of uh, with how to design this stuff? And they got a lot of good info, obviously, from them. And then right about, I think it was 68, uh, check my notes here, sorry, 69, the, S, the YS3 Lockheed design was chosen. And then at that point, they went into uh, further refinement and manufacturing. And what we call the IOC, so the initial operational capability, happened in 1974, which coincidentally was the same year that I IOC'd. So I was born in 74. Yeah, they, and they only built them from 74 to 78. I think there's like 186 of them or so. But um, so it was anti-submarine warfare. This is a very long, sorry, test pilot answer to your shorter question. But uh, <laughs> so pardon me for that. But um, uh, yeah, so it was anti-submarine warfare. It replaced the S2, right, looking for subs. So we're talking about Sonoboys. We're talking about long-range endurance. Uh, it's got a magnetic anomaly detector. It's kind of a stinger comes out the back and looks for any kind of Magnetic anomalies. Uh, it also has a real nice radar suite, the APS-137, which is inverse synthetic aperture radar. If you guys, I don't know if your listeners have talked about that, but something to Google. You can save that for another day. But uh, what it boils down to is you could actually find things that are about the size of a periscope at quite a distance. Wow. So, yeah. So it's pretty impressive, the radar. It's actually very impressive. And at the time, you know, nowadays with our fifth generation fighters, they talk about sensor fusion. Mm -hmm. Well, some of the first instances of sensor fusion was actually with the S3, with its radar and its uh, ESM suite, the uh, EW suite, if you want to call it. So that'd be the ALR. I think it's 67 or maybe 76, but basically the radar receivers, the radar itself, the magnetic anomaly detector in the back, and all that data could be fused together to provide a, a very clear picture of what's going on. Wow. So like quite an impressive aircraft for its time. It, it really was. You know what I'm saying? It was, uh, and it, it turned out to stay impressive. And what I mean by that is, as the, the mission kind of, I wouldn't say lingered, but it transferred more to the helicopters. They said, well, what can we do with this thing? Because it's a very reliable airframe. So they end up using it for utility purposes. So they could transport gear in it. They could put people in it. And then eventually it became pretty much in just an aerial refueler. So what I mean by, I say just, is it not as sexy as the Hornets and the, the Tomcats dropping bombs, shooting missiles? but very essential, especially around the carrier for what we call blue water ops. I don't know. Are you, are you, are you and the listeners pretty um, aware of blue water? Ops? Oh yeah. We have a lot of Navy fans on our channel. So yeah, they'll know. Okay, cool. You get, yeah. So it's, I mean, the carrier can't be blue water without some kind of recovery tanker. Right. And, Absolutely. and the S3 was, sorry, the S3 at the time was the only show in town. 
Yeah. So let's talk about some of your ground training on the S3. What was it like coming from, like you say, like a you know a fast jet like the Goshawk? Uh, how, how, how did you feel about this? Uh, actually, once I got over my little ego thing, it was uh, <laughs> it was actually really nice. I I had never worked with a guy before in the cockpit. The training for us, they focus on single seat where you're supposed to do all three of those: aviate, navigate, and communicate. And when you get another guy in the cockpit. It at first was kind of awkward, so not awkward like a high school dance or anything like that, but just you know you don't want to step on his toes, he doesn't want to step on yours, and are the responsibilities and the roles clearly defined? And then once you establish those roles, and they're kind of codified through the community, so it's not like hey this this naval flight officer, the NFL, he works this way, and this other NFL works this way. It was very standardized, which was nice. So once the pilots as a whole understood how the NFOs worked, you could integrate. And no kidding, two heads are almost always better than one. So uh, let's talk about your first flight in the S3. What was that like? Uh, Well, because I had come from T-45 land where things were faster, it was actually very enjoyable, not only for the speed, so my brain was kind of already trained for those speeds on how to anticipate the aircraft, but also the scenery, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to be in San Diego, but... It's uh, it's pretty nice on the from the ground eye view, and then when you're up at three thousand to five thousand feet, it's even so better. much better. <laughs> yeah, it is. So I just really enjoyed it. The other thing that was new to me is, uh, as you can picture, the S3. It's got the two engines that hang off the wings. Yes. And we started learning about single engine operations. So, uh, so if you can think of a one engine gets, we didn't shut it off, but we put it at idle, and we flew around. There's a yaw that's created, right? So basically, a twisting motion. Mm-hmm. Sorry to use my hands there. And uh, so. I had never dealt with anything other than centerline thrust before. So there was some good learning, and it wasn't difficult. It definitely had a high wing loading and, and um, plenty of power available for what it needed. So mm. it was easy to adjust, but it, it was there was some learning there. It looks very much like an airliner. Yeah, do you mind if I go grab the... Uh, yeah, absolutely. The go grab it, sunshine. <laughs> Sorry to put my back to the audience. <laughs> but anyway, so... Yeah, so... Uh, you're absolutely right. You got the low slung engine. So here's the. Uh, this is a wooden model of the S3B. And what squadron is this in, before uh, we uh, move on? So that one is VS41, VS41. which is the yeah. fleet replacement or fleet replenishment squadron. Excuse me, FRS, or as the old timers call it, the RAG replacement air group. Yeah. And so, just like you said, it's got the low slung engines, right? And when I say low slung, I mean it comes off the wing, but it also is actually below the center of gravity. So that becomes an issue. Uh, when you add power, the jet has a natural, not a very dramatic, but has a natural tendency to pitch up. So that, that and we can talk about it later, but I actually had binding controls one time where my, my uh, elevator authority or pitch authority didn't work. So I had to use the throttles to pitch the nose up and then retard the throttles to bring the nose back down. So wow. I Okay, so it was built, as we mentioned earlier, for loitering, right? So yep. it had plenty of gas. Gas was never a factor. It was uh, very low stress when it came to fuel management, I'll say that. So that's a definite plus. It, uh, it flew around slowly, which is good for surveillance, but also it, that's huge for when you're coming back aboard the carrier. Yeah. So as we, as we mentioned earlier, it's got the, the big wings and the light weight, so we're going to call it low wing loading. So low wing loading is going to lend itself to a slow approach speed, which I absolutely enjoyed. Uh, the other thing, one thing we did mention was uh, with the slow approach speed, one of the design features is called direct lift control DLC. So it has these, there's a button on the stick and it pops up spoilers on the top of the wing and, and spoils the lift. 
and you can come down real quickly. So you got these engines that can kind of pop you up real quickly, and then you got a button to drop you back down. So it turns out to be very, I thought, very forgiving to land on the carrier. Uh, so the S3 doesn't have the heads-up display, yeah. as you and your folks there are probably familiar. So uh, what, whereas the Hornet guys, and I became a Hornet guy, so I can kind of I can kind of poke the bear a little bit on this one. <laughs> but, but the Hornet guys traditionally would declare an emergency for a no-HUD approach. Well, the S3, we never had a HUD. So, um, so it was very dark, and it was no kidding. The LSO, the landing signal officer basics that we were taught in flight school, that is meatball, lineup, angle of attack. Uh, it's a very forgiving airframe, except uh, for two instances. One is going to be when you add power, the nose does pitch up, so you're going to have to counter it by pushing ever so slightly forward on the stick. So your your two hands, I'm sorry, your hands, excuse me, have to work even harder, I thought, or more together. And then if you look at this beast, so this thing is about, well, it, it's short, right? You can see it's kind of short. That was due to some carrier specifications. I'm going to throw out a number. I think it was 59 feet or something. I'm sorry, I forget. But basically, because of that, there was a lot of uh, lateral instability. So they had to build this big old tail. So that's kind of one of the characteristics of this big old tail. Well, because of that big old tail and the way the wings are placed, we had something called Dutch roll. So uh, yes, are you, yes. you know Dutch roll? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so the way I think of it, and we had a flight control. We had computers on board that would uh, counteract or accommodate, we'll say, the Dutch roll. But if the computers didn't work, which happened on occasion, then the yaw damper, as it was called, I felt no kidding like Stevie Wonder coming down the chute. <laughs> and I was, it was totally, I just called to say I love you, that I hate this. <laughs> so, so, Great time, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, so, so what I'm getting at is landing at night on the carrier, it's just as dark as you think. And honestly, I didn't get paid to land enough at, land enough, I didn't get paid enough, excuse me, to land at night. But uh, I definitely would have landed on during the day for free, man. That was a lot of fun. Right. So it's it's community specific. So if you're not a pilot, but you're aircrew in the Navy, then you're a naval flight officer. Naval. But then once you get into your specific platform for a prowler, that you're an electronic countermeasures officer, ECMO. For oh, an F-18, okay. you're yeah. For an F-18, you're a weapon system operator, so WISO, WSO. But my guys were just known as uh, we had different positions called tacos. But I'm gonna leave that aside, and. I'll tell you what, it, it got to the point, because you're flying with another guy that's your age, and you're out there, and the Navy really puts a lot of trust in us once we get our wings. So you're out there with this fancy machine, whether it be a Hornet or an S3, and we would go sometimes up in the S3, go up to about 400, 400 plus miles away from the carrier, and we did something called long-range patrols or LERPs or LRPs, and we were by ourselves. So it's just me and this other guy my age in kind of the, the station wagon, if you will, and we're... <laughs> We can't even talk to the carrier. We're so far away. And they just hoped that at a certain time we would be back overhead to land. So mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the interaction with my right seater. And the right seater had his own throttle and stick. So we could actually take turns. Uh, I would oh, never. I the stick in the S3. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, doctrine prevented the right seater from landing. So the right. pilot who sat in the left seat is in charge of the landing, both carrier and land based. Yeah. So out on the carrier, it's predominantly. Uh, sleep, eat, fly, and then rinse and repeat. So we would, uh, as you can imagine, a pilot on an aircraft carrier doesn't have a lot to do except play video games, eat, sleep, and fly. So we absolutely loved it. So a day would traditionally start probably about 8 o'clock in the morning. So it was kind of later because we'd usually stay up late for night operations. Yeah. So you start up at 8, uh, probably hit the gym, get some breakfast, 
get showered, get in your flight suit, then get breakfast, excuse me, then head down to the ready room. So the ready room on the carrier is kind of the social mecca for the squadron. So it's everybody hangs out. So you'd hang out there. Now, the, the day prior, the flight schedule would have come out. So you would have already known what your flight was and when your flight was. So you'd, you'd get your administrative things done, whether it be building kneeboard cards or uh, talking to your crew, make sure they know what's going on. Sometimes you'd have to talk to the intelligence officer on the carrier and um, uh, and figure out what's the, the lay of the land, if you will, so to speak. So you get all that done, you go for your flight, and the, the brief and the flight and the debrief were a majority of the day. And because we had a lot of gas, if you will, we could stay up for what we call cycles. So many intervals, we'll call it. So you stay up for a long time, and you come back down, and it's probably dinner at that point. Go get something to eat, and then unwind in the ready room, and then uh, probably think about some people hit the gym then, and then probably go to sleep and start the day over. Wow, so like quite a busy day then. It was. On fly days, it was very busy. And believe it or not, no fly days could sometimes be, they were definitely more boring, but they could even be more busy because, or busier, excuse me, because that's when the uh, the leadership, the CEO and the XO would try to have all the meetings, yeah. try to get all the meetings done so you can get ready for the next fly day. Did air crew uh, get treated better on the ship than, you know, the kind of, I don't know, the, the guys who didn't fly? <laughs> that is a great question. I'm glad you asked. I have two words for you, crew rest. So what I mean by that is the, uh, we call them the surface warfare officers, the SWOs. So ship's company, they had watches and that, you know, as the, whenever the ship's steaming or underway, they have to have some set of eyes, at least, you know, a couple guys looking around. So they didn't have the, um, the sanctuary for rest that we did. So we had a mandatory rest period and that included actually sleeping. And so we had ours, they didn't have theirs. And, uh, we may have heard about it once or twice. Yeah. So I think we got, all I'm going to say, nothing against the swoes is that I love my job as a pilot on the aircraft carrier. And we were pretty much, you know, everyone was kind of supporting us to do our missions. But uh, did you ever do any DACT in the S3? Funny you ask. So DAC, yes, we did. Absolutely. So dissimilar air uh, combat, right, training? Yep. Uh, so I did it against a Prowler, and I did it against an F-18. So a little background is uh, this would have been during the Operation Enduring Freedom, mm-hmm. and I was on the John F. Kennedy. We're in the North Arabian Sea, just south of Pakistan. And the Hornets would launch three aircraft to make two for a combat section to go in. The third, once the first two primary, if you will, were designated as mission ready and they'd launch and, and go into country, the third just got to hang out. So a lot of times, and keep in mind, these guys are going in what we call double ugly. So they'd have a fuel tank on the center line, fuel tank on one side, excuse me, on that side, they have a FLIR and all sorts of stuff hanging off the wings. The reason I mention that is they're very draggy. Yeah. So it's not the fantastic performance you're used to. It's you know got a lot of drag out there. So um, once or twice, I may have uh, tied, you know, mixed it up with a, an F-18. And our – now, that's just a more maneuverable, more capable aircraft, obviously, the F-18 and S-3. But we had this little trick up our sleeve called maneuver flaps. Wow. So we would – yeah, we'd come into the merge, and I'd drop my maneuver flaps, and I'd get down really slow. And keep in mind, the S-3 stall speed was something around 97 knots. So it was less really? – it was double wow. Yeah, it's double digits, so it was way low, dude. And then I could actually just kind of turn inside of this, the Hornet, who's turning around bigger circles, 
And I had, you know, I didn't have any way to pretend to shoot him or anything like that, but I just tried to stay behind him and until he went vertical or something like that. But, uh, so, so we did it there. So in summary, because the F-18s were so heavily laden with all the air to ground stores, there was an opportunity for me, I wouldn't say to, to beat him, but to, to tie or break even. Now, the Prowler was different because uh, you can talk about aircraft capabilities, but one of the capabilities is honestly visibility, mm-hmm. right? So they, they teach us in training that you lose sight, you lose the fight. Well, the Prowler has extremely poor visibility once you pass the wing line or the 3-9, if you think oh, really? of it like a Yeah. Wow. So the, uh, now the S3 is similar, except if we have guys in the back, because it's, it's actually a four-seat aircraft, they can look out the window a little bit. So what you have is two, we used to call them the fat kids. So we had two fat kids out there that would uh, mix it up by turning and coming toward each other. But as soon as we passed each other's uh, wing lines, if you will, kind of like this, right about here, we started to lose sight. And you just had to turn and hope you knew where he ended up. So it turned out to be two fat, almost partially blind, we'll call them kids, fighting on the playground. And it was it was never elegant or pretty, but it was fun. Do you have any memorable stories you can share with us on the S3? I do. Uh, the first one, yeah, so a, a couple uh, funny ones and a couple scary ones. The first scary one I remember was uh, my job was to launch at night, and I had a buddy of mine from the academy flew the F-14, the plane on the fly, right? He, uh, he needed some flares dropped in the water so he could go do his bombing practice. So we joined up. It was, um, and he... I joined on him, and then he gave me the lead, and I, I we headed out to the the bombing area, if you will. This is from the carriers over water. It's about six o'clock in the evening, so up at eighteen thousand feet and above, it's still it's still daylight, right? But now, as we start to descend down, we kind of dive into the darkness or dive into the night. So here I have imagine the plane that I've always wanted to fly is right next to me, out the left side of, of the plane. So as I'm descending down, I'm looking like, man, that thing is so sweet. Man, that thing is so sweet, so sweet. I'm coming down. We get down to about 400 feet. I have certain altitude alarms that go off. I'm like, okay, I need to pay more attention to my instruments than the plane next to me. We're coming out. Well, what I had unfortunately done poorly that day was adjust the Colesman setting. So the the Colesman window, excuse me, the altimeter setting on the the barometric altimeter. So all of a sudden I heard an altitude warning from the aircraft, actually based on the radar altimeter. But my human factors, the first thing I looked at was the altitude gauge, the barometric altitude. And the needle, I will never forget, honestly, was winding down through 60 feet, which is the height of the flight deck. Yeah. And I was nose down at 250 knots or something like that coming downhill. So I actually, my whole body tensed. And when I tensed, I pulled back on the stick. But I thought, is this going to hurt when I die? I, I kid you not, man. That's, that's honestly what I thought. Is this going <laughs> to hurt? And uh, fortunately, you know, uh, grace of God, I pulled hard enough that I was able to recover and it turned out that the because I had incorrectly set the barometric altimeter, I was off by about 100 feet. Really? So my guess is when I saw 60 feet, I was really at 160 feet yeah, descending. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely uh, was reminded of the lesson of set the correct altimeter setting on deck. <laughs> so that, that was one kind of near-death scary thing. Um, another one was another scary thing in that um, – have, have you and the listeners had a chance to talk about how we land on the carrier during the day? We do kind of a circular pattern to land. Yeah, yeah, you do the, the circuit, yeah. Perfect. Okay. So the carrier's off to my left. It's heading in the opposite direction than I am. So I'm at what we call the 180 or the beam position. Mm-hmm. And I look over and the Kennedy 
as, as uh, pitching so much that I can actually see the screws coming out of the water. Wow. And at that point, I have not that many, you know, about a minute or so, I don't know, I guess a little bit more time before I have to go turn and land on this thing. So I just remember thinking, this is, why did I sign up for this job? You know. So, <laughs> so um, I ended up turning final, pitching deck. The LSOs are out there with Mobilis, the manually operated meatball, basically. And they talk me down. There is a screaming power call followed by wave off, wave off, and I still land. And... Um, yeah, I got real close to the back of the boat that day. So as in as in unforgivingly hitting the back of the boat. So once I got over the shock, if you will, and and I realized that I was okay and we shut down, you know, taxied out of the LA, shut down. First thing I did, which I shouldn't have, well after I debriefed, is I called my parents on the satellite phone. So I'm now about 2 months into a 6-month cruise, about a third of the way through. And and I am excited because I just escaped death, you know, so to speak. What I didn't take into perspective was my parents' perspective, I guess, or view of how they're going to take this. I said, hey, guys, hey, it's great. You know, hey, I just want to chat with you real quickly. Hey, I uh, almost ran into the back of the boat today. <laughs> not the <laughs> right do. thing to say. I do, do. <laughs> Yeah, not the right thing to say to your mother when no, you're not, no, no. thousands of miles away and you still got four more months of cruise. So not so good. But um, those are kind of the, the scary ones. And then can I give you one quick funny one? Absolutely. Go for it, Sunshine. Okay. So we blast off from the carrier. And this is sorry for those that have heard the Fighter Pilot podcast recount. But there's basically a urine bag that's going to float. So if you can picture the S3 cockpit, it's kind of got a, a roundish canopy bubble, as you could imagine. I'm in the left. The co-pilot's in the right-hand seat. Uh, he, We have long missions. And there's no bathroom in the back. So our solution is a giant Ziploc bag right? With a desiccant in the bottom. So I kind of look away while he's doing his thing. And then he stuffs it into a map case. So he seals the bag. He thinks, he thinks he seals the bag, sticks it in the map case and off we go. Well, we just happened to have some practice bombs aboard that day. So we did our normal tanking mission and we had some extra time and we had these bombs on our wing. They're just smaller Mark 76, these little blue 25 pound things. So we started doing dive deliveries and we had a couple left. And I said, Hey, why don't we pickle as in release the bomb and being very safe, why don't we actually follow the bomb down to impact? And we'll recover before, but we'll follow it down. So we pickle the bomb. And it falls off the right-hand side of the wing of the aircraft. Excuse me. I roll. I visually acquire the bomb as it's fallen, and then I stuff the nose. When I stuff the nose to get a dive going, it's a pretty violent stuff. A lot of things come up out of the cockpit. Oh, one of, <laughs> yep, one of which is the unsealed urine bag <laughs> over on the right-hand side of the aircraft. Now, keep in mind, remember that canopy that I talked yeah, about? Yeah. So this this bag is going to open partially, and it's going to follow the curvature of the canopy. Now, it, all of a sudden, it comes into my field of regard, all my field of view, excuse me. I see the bomb. I see the water. I see my buddy. And then I see his urine bag kind of floating through the air. Oh, dear. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> this is the first time I've ever seen what I would call weightless, and even it's more free fall, I guess, free fall water bubbles. So basically, the urine, some of it comes out, and it's those little globs kind of floating through the cockpit <laughs> so now my my attention is focused on these globs of urine where they're going to go now i refocus on the bomb and i see the water and i'm like oh i need to recover i need to pull up on the stick because we're getting close to the ground or water excuse me so as i recover i'm looking at the the, the urine blobs if you will and they come and they basically splash down on my leg so 
and we still had another two hours of mission time. So basically, I had to fly around in my buddy's uh, urine. Well, I think that's while. the one time I'm not envious of you, uh, Sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good idea. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. <laughs> This is part two of our interview with Brian Sunshine Sinclair. In this episode, he chats about his time on the Hornet, both the Super and the Legacy models, and also the Fighter Pilot podcast. So the S3 was going away, and so they, they called uh, Sundowning the community, and I actually went off to grad school. So the Navy said, hey, why don't you go to Monterey, which is another fantastic venue in California. Go off to Monterey and study something. So I, I uh, no kidding, went through the course curriculum and I found the longest curriculum because my wife loved the area. So I'm like, hey, we're going to stay in Monterey for two and a half years. <laughs> yeah. So lots of geeks speak with a master's degree in astronautical engineering, but um, absolutely love the area. About halfway through, I got a call from our I, detailer. I call him the flesh peddler, if you will. But anyway, the detailer, he said, hey, man. I've got a hornet slot for you because as they sundown the community, they were trying to farm people out into the different communities. And it was uh, just based on your written performance. So they said, hey, you have the opportunity to go fly hornets, but you need to leave grad school halfway through to go get back kind of on track. So, you know what? I had a a real heart to heart with my wife. I prayed about it and I decided, no, I'm going to stay in grad school and see what happens. The Navy was immensely for I, I was fortunate that navy was just uh, amazingly nice to me and that they held my f-18 position until after grad school and then i went out to start f-18c's awesome i mean a very lucky man but uh yeah let's talk yeah. about some of your ground training how did it compare to you know the viking oh dude fast and furious so it was uh the the, re- the replacement squadron or the training squadron was about eight months yeah and work long days. I would drive to work in the dark. I would come home in the dark, you know, like wow. 12, 14 hours later. Yeah. And I was now going single seat mentality. And I was learning a whole new aircraft that has different mission, but also different handling characteristics. So a lot of the stuff that I had learned in the S3 was now I would consider a bad habit. Mm-hmm. So it was very intense. And I was one of the older guys because I had been through a cruise in grad school. So I was probably five years older than most of my peers. Uh, at first, no, it was stressful. And then at times, uh, naval aviation does get boring at times when you're, <laughs> you're not bombing or landing or taking off. And it was actually, it was actually kind of boring just sitting there by myself yeah. and you don't always want to talk on the radio. So, um, but I'll tell you what, once you kind of master and I'm not, I never had a perfect flight, but once you do feel that you pretty well know the Hornet and you can execute a lot of the missions by yourself. You, you kind of get that King Kong thing going, right? I mean, you, you just feel unstoppable. So that transition from relying on somebody and having very different missions and kind of a slower mindset to going by yourself and going a lot faster with more complicated systems and missions, uh, it was daunting. But once I kind of figured it out, I it was a, a great sense of achievement. Yeah. And I think, obviously, I'm guessing your first aircraft was the F-18C. So let's talk about your first flight. What was it like putting in that reheat for the first time? <laughs> the reheat, afterburner, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter what speed you start at, Mike. It is always a kick in the pants. Yeah. They're just, it, it is awesome. Just absolutely loved it. Then my, my first instance would have been a takeoff. We do all of our uh, takeoffs and afterburner. And so that that acceleration was pretty amazing. But then also when you're up at altitude and you're at, say, 250 knots and you plug in the blowers, you still get pushed back in your seat. It's it's amazing. 
Yeah, so let's talk about some of your your training when you started on the F-18. Like, what what kind of flights were you conducting at this time? Uh, so it's a build-up approach, starting with familiarization. So, hey, here are all the switches. Here's how the airspeed you need to memorize, the procedures you need to memorize. So start in the simulators. And then from there, you're going to go out into the local area and learn how to handle the aircraft for real and try to learn, excuse me, not try, learn how to take off and <laughs> land. And then from there, you, you focus on more air-to-ground stuff. So that would be timing, how to use your sensors. We didn't have necessarily live ordnance, but we had some more of those practice bombs, those Mark 76s. So we work on air-to-ground. And from there, we worked on air-to-air, which would be uh, beyond visual range engagements and also our all-weather intercepts, if you want to call them OWIES. And then we'd work on basic fighter maneuvers or BFM, also known as air combat maneuvers or ACM. And the final graduation exercise, we'll call it, would be going to the boat and landing successfully both day and night on the boat. So overall, it was eight months eight months of a, uh, what we call a fire hose. So as you can imagine, just very high-intensity, high-tempo academics. So you mentioned uh, ACM or DACT right there. Like, how did the Hornet fare against, you know, the types of the time, you know, F-15 or, you know, the tornadoes? Yeah, so uh, I didn't get to mix it up or DAC them, do any DAC, excuse me, excuse me, uh, until I got to the fleet. Mm-hmm. And I went down and I went down to Florida and flew against some F-15s, specifically F-15Cs. Cs, yeah. Yeah, the Cs. So their thrust to weight is stunning, for lack of a better term. So... Uh, basically if we got into my, my goal, my going and game plan every time was to get them slow, to try to beat them down, get them slow. And then I could hopefully outmaneuver them. with Exactly. That was my game plan. His game plan was, uh, usually, and they're all very nice. You know what I'm saying? Like we're all still on the same team, but we do have our egos to defend. Uh, So, um, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, he would a couple times and it was two different guys, but both, both occasions, I became very, uh, I had a lot of respect, we'll say, for their thrust-to-weight ratio. So at a certain fuel state, they can basically accelerate up uphill. And we'd get into a vertical fight, and I would be nose up, and he would be nose up, and then I would have to fall off, if you will, come back down, and he would he could continue up. So an Immelman is the uh, traditional purely vertical yeah. maneuver. So I actually saw an F-15 do a double Immelman when I could barely I milk out one Immelman. Yeah, so it was it was. Wow. Very impressive. Uh, so, so obviously the the uh, I'll call it specific excess power. Basically, just the power of the F-15 was impressive. Then I flew against the F-16, and I I had no idea. I had heard stories, you know what I'm saying. But until you get in the ring with him, it was very impressive because they just come at the speed of heat. They have nine Gs available, whereas the Hornet has seven and a half. And that one and a half extra G, if you want to call it, is huge when it comes to a two-circle fight. So everything that the Charlie, the F-18C did well, it continued to do better than the F-18E or F. And everything it did poorly, the F, the Super Hornet did better. So what I mean by that is when it comes to dive bombing and uh, pitch control and really rolling technique, if you will, I felt, just me personally, I haven't, you know, uh, asked a lot of guys, but I enjoyed dive bombing and the maneuverability more in the Charlie than I did the Echo. So to me, I picture the Echo as more of, for the American folks, as like a probably a 65 Corvette. All right, so it's unbridled power. It's not elegant. It's got its warts and dimples and whatever. But man, when you need to get something done, it does it. Now, the Super Hornet on the other side was more of the, the early 2000 Honda Civic. So it's got bells and whistles. 
you know, it's got a lot of bring back capability, meaning a lot of fuel and all that stuff. It's very luxurious, I thought, space-wise in the cockpit, but it wasn't as maneuverable. Mm-hmm. And it didn't need to be for the missions that uh, it was kind of migrating toward, if you will. Yeah. So, obviously, we're going to talk about the Super Hornet now. So, like, how did you go from the Charlie to the Echo and the F model? Ten, ten hours. They gave me. <laughs> they said, "Sunshine, congratulations! You're uh, you're going to your net. You're getting promoted. You're going to your next squadron. The next squadron is the Echo model, or they fly the Echo. And uh, we're going to give you kind of a, I wouldn't say an abbreviated syllabus, but it was a, a shorter syllabus. And they uh, they said to me honestly, "Hey, don't worry about caracoling here in the confines of the training squadron. We're just going to send you out to the boat, and you'll just make it happen." I was like, "Oh." Okay, so, <laughs> so wow, that what that like, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it's really blunt. <laughs> it, it was now it was uh they, they I'm not going to badmouth the navy. They definitely uh, stuck to their doctrine, if you will, right? But there was a little bit of leeway. So I'm not saying they were cavalier. I'm not saying that, but they basically said, hey, for efficiencies, we're going to not finish you here at the the FRS or RAG. We're going to send you to your fleet squadron, and you can do your carrier qualification there, CQ. Now, once I got to the fleet, my new squadron, we still had so many field carrier landing practices or FCLPs to go through. So I followed the fleet syllabus. But my first time landing during the day, because there was a lot more visual cues, I kind of got it. You know, it took me maybe one pass or something and I kind of got it. But at night, because you are lacking a lot of visual cues and it's just a, it's a different creature, as you can imagine, I boltered or missed the wires probably seven or eight times and uh yeah and and basically imagine stepping into this new squadron where you're middle management so you've got jos junior officers below you who are supposedly supposed to look up to you yeah and here's this brand new guy and i can't get aboard the carrier (laughs) at night (laughs) so so it was it was an uphill battle but um it did work out the whole transition was very safe but honestly, the night CQ, the night carrier qualification, it was pretty, for me, it was pretty intimidating. So the Charlie, kind of going back to the analogy of the 65 VET versus the, the 2000 Honda yeah. Civic, they had done their homework on human factors. So what I mean by that is the cockpit was just more, the echo cockpit was just more ergonomic. Yeah. Uh, specifically, it's bigger. I didn't bang my elbows as much. I'm kind of a... a one of the wider guys, I guess you can hopefully up here, not down low, but, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, just for my girth, we'll say whatever it accommodated, but also it had a touchscreen display in the middle as opposed to knobs for the upfront control, the UFC versus the UFCD. And no kidding, the radar altimeter, if you can uh, picture the F-18C cockpit, C or D, early A through D, the radar altimeter was always hidden, very, very essential piece of gear, as you can imagine, especially for night flights, it was hidden behind my knee. Wow. So anytime I wanted to draw my attention to the radar altimeter or the radar altimeter bug, the alarm system, basically, I had to move my knee and take my scan away from everything going on outside. Wow, but really? was in the cockpit. Yeah, down low. Wow. Fortunately, yeah, so it was a bear. I really did not like the, the low-altitude warning system yeah. laws in the Charlie but they had taken that system since, and in the Echo, they incorporated it into the upfront controlled uh, upfront control display, so you could manipulate the bugs, if you will, or the alerts, right in front of you. Which for me, right in front of me, is directly below the heads-up display, so it was a lot easier. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, for me, so GE General Electric makes the the uh, the 400 the engine. Excuse me, I'm just going to call them engines. 
And I'll tell you what, I should have bought stock the day that I had my nose gear explode during takeoff, right after I rotated. So after I pulled, pulled the nose off the ground, the, the bearing on the right-hand side, because the, the nose gear has two nose wheels, wow. right? And each wheel has bearings in it. So the bearings uh, basically seized and it exploded and the shrapnel went down my right engine uh, just after takeoff. So uh, obviously I can't see all this happen except uh, bitching Betty, as we call it, right? The, uh, the aural tones basically come on a jet, say, engine right, engine right. And I feel this yaw as now the left engine still works, but the right doesn't. And I'm not able to get the power to climb away. So that day I actually had a British instructor pilot who was in front of me. It was oh, wow. a 10 second go. Yeah. So yeah, good old bloke. So he, uh, he takes off first, 10 seconds later, I, I start, you know, rolling down the runway. I pick up the nose and then, and all that stuff just happens. Well, uh, aviate, navigate, communicate, right? So I'm just trying not to crash into the ground. So tower's talking to me. They see this, this smoke trail coming out of one side of my jet and they're asking me, Hey, what's going on? And I literally, I don't have the brain power to talk. I'm just fighting the jet to stay airborne to figure out what is wrong. And one of our procedures is the push emergency jettison button. So we call it ringing the doorbell. Well, I had some practice bombs and I had some fuel tanks or I had one fuel tank on board that was full of fuel that day. And as I'm just about to push the button, I have the wherewithal to look over the, 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 the glare shield, excuse me, and I see a house. So I'm basically about to fly over top of this populated area and drop a bunch of practice bombs and fuel and a fuel tank. So I decide that my bad day shouldn't be their bad day. So I decide not to jettison the stores. And now I'm, here, I'm sitting here kind of behind the power curve, as we call it, right? So I got left engines in full grunt or afterburner reheat. And the right one's not working. It's yawing, and it's just it's just kind of waffling along. I will never forget 160 knots and 380 feet. So that's what I sustained. Yeah, which 160 knots is barely above rotation speed. I sustained that for what seemed like a, a, a long time as I flew over. It was a neighborhood. It was a series of farmhouses out in this El Centro area. But anyway, so I flew over, and I couldn't get the jet above that airspeed or above that altitude. So finally, I thought, well, I've already got afterburner on the left. I'm going to start dumping the fuel to try to lighten the load. And so that's when my British instructor flies back around. He joins up at a distance. He's like, hey, sunshine, what's up? And I'm like, uh, well, <laughs> I'm just trying to fight the jet right now. So I said to him, but hey, I'll tell you what, can I dump fuel and select afterburner at the same time? He goes, well, I don't know, but I'm going to step away. And he takes a cut away. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. Cheers. So, uh, yeah, cheers. Exactly. Good, good luck with that. So anyway, so basically I alternate between selecting afterburner and dumping fuel. I eventually climb up to 6,000 feet. I get the jet under control, come back in for a trap. Uh, so there'll be a carrier arrest, uh, sorry, a, a field, short field arrestment. So I drop the hook, take the trap. I crawl out, crash and salvage crews all around me. I crawl, I look into the intake of the right engine and no kidding Mike I could see daylight Christ so really? yeah so it had absolutely yeah it had absolutely destroyed the right engine uh, enough that it although the engine was so reliable it stayed at idle and at idle it still allowed for the electronics of so the generator was still online and so a lot of the utilities still worked which was amazing but no thrust was to be had that day out of that right engine so. I think you were lucky book of that day yeah I yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree 
But uh, let's go on to, we're going to talk about the Fighter Pilot podcast now because you are a co-host, aren't you? Let's talk about how you got into being a co-host. Uh, two things. Firstly, dumb luck and Jello's a sucker. So <laughs> I hope he hears that. So. <laughs> now, um, so my last tour in the Navy, I met Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, as you know. Yep. And uh, Jello basically was a year ahead of me in, we'll call it the process. So he retired about a year, I believe, or so ahead of me. And uh, as he retired, he was thinking about what he's going to do next. And he ended up settling, not settling, but deciding upon the airlines, which is a fantastic way. And he said, hey, I'm going to start this podcast. I said, oh, that's cool. So he bounced a couple ideas off me. And then um, he and I did the first episode, kind of the inaugural episode. We talked about what is a fighter pilot. And it was a lot of fun. And it was just kind of kind of like this, right? I mean, I, I wish I got to know you ahead of time better, Mike. But this yeah, is still yeah. fun. It's kind of casual. Yeah. So he and I basically just had a casual conversation. And we hit record. And we didn't know where it was going to go. So at that point, he went off to do his retired stuff and podcasts. And I went just continue on with the Navy stuff. And then he asked me back for a second episode to do something else. And then later on, he said, hey, um, what do you think? I need kind of a co- co-host or a, a lackey or whatever. <laughs> a sidekick. How about that? Yeah, sidekick. Yeah. sidekick is good, yeah. He, yeah. He needed a sidekick. And I, I thought it would be fun. I sure enjoyed the I, – I like hanging out with him. And we had fun on the first episode. I have since been helping out. So uh, the Fighter Pilot Podcast, since you kind of prompted me here, it's uh, it's it's amazing. I had no idea, and I'm sure you're very similar uh, emotions, I guess, about this, but I had no idea how far-reaching those podcasts really are. Yeah. And when I say far-reaching, I'm talking more geographically yeah. than maybe walks of life. I know we got some old folks. We got some young folks. But um, it's pretty funny. When I misspeak on the podcast, it's usually a technical detail and I, I mess those up all the time, and I do appreciate the feedback. So where do you see the Fight the Pilot podcast going in the future, Sunshine? Great question. Uh, so we're very excited. We've got a whole bunch of new stuff. So Jello put together, there's the Fighter Pilot podcast has now, we have this creation called BVR Productions or yep. Beyond Visual Range Productions. That's the parent company, if you will. And we've had some really uh, nice and just uh, very specialized folks join the team. So what I mean by that is there's a, Simulator called, I hope I get this right, Digital Combat Simulation, DCS. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm i a babe in the woods when it comes to this stuff, but I was very impressed with the, uh, I went online, saw some YouTube videos. I don't have the software. And I met some of the dudes. We have two of the guys, uh, Baltic Dragon and Jabbers, that are now on the team. So we also have a business development guy. We have uh, a musician. We have a graphic designer. So it's really impressive what we're doing. And that is uh, the website is you know, has just kind of exploded. I think it's a, to me, it's a very attractive website for lack of a better term. Just the, the visuals and the music is stunning. The stories are pretty compelling, are very compelling, excuse me. And right now we're going through an aircraft series. So we're trying to basically interview a pilot from as many different types of aircraft as possible. So uh, whether it be a gen, gen one fighter generation, you know, first generation to a fifth generation fighter. So everywhere in between. And we recently started something called deep dives. Yeah. So I did. It, I had a chance to teach aerodynamics at the Naval Academy for about two years. So I'm taking some of those old lesson plans, if you will, trying to morph them into something that hopefully the listeners or the, the watchers in this case find interesting. So we're going to talk through some basics of aerodynamics, probably yeah. radar theory, uh, physics behind BFM, and so on and so forth. So we've got the continued effort, we'll call it, I guess, to, to interview different pilots from different aircraft. 
We have the uh, deep dive going on and just the amount of, oh, behind the scenes is another thing. So, yeah, love that, love that. Do you, okay, cool, yeah, so we'll take some YouTube videos and then perhaps provide a perspective that the, the viewers haven't seen, haven't heard before, I guess you could say, as we explain what's going on in the cockpit. So, so we're pretty excited. Um, and i got to give a shout out to your website. I mean, or your whole podcast effort is, I don't know if you call it podcast, YouTube channel. Yeah. Is that? It's very impressive in the gamut from which you, you pick your pilots, whether it be nationality, uh, age, uh, sex, anything. I mean, it's just you've, you run a, a wide gamut, and it's very entertaining. Uh, so do you have any hobbies? Uh, so my number one hobby nowadays, since I'm retired from Navy, is being a dad. So I have two little girls, seven and ten. Uh, I, I found a job where I get to consult for the Navy on different technical weapons, specifically for the F-18, currently for the F-18. Um, and uh, as a, um, a nice a nice Benny, we'll call it, or benefit, is that I get to work from the house. So, yes, I will travel to go train the pilots on the carrier, different exercises in different areas, but I actually get to walk my kids to school, and I just absolutely love it. So, so hobbies would be um, being a dad, and then from there, being a good husband, and then uh, physical fitness. So I love running. I try to get to the gym every morning. Uh, you know, I work on different routines, if you will, like that. And then, uh, truth be told, as much as I love aviation, I I love Star Wars. I don't know if you're a Star Trek or a Star Wars guy. Or... I am not. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so, uh, so I enjoy Star Wars. I. Uh, I'm more passionate about aviation, but I just I love I love the movies and uh, all the collector items. I don't know what you want to call it. all the the collectibles, whatever. I love that kind of stuff. What is your favorite aircraft you've flown? Because you've flown a few, but uh, what's the favorite? Yeah, so I've got to fly 33 different kinds of aircraft, yep. civilian and military, and. For the sheer thrill, even though I only have 10 hours in, I'm going to have to say the F-16. Wow. So, yeah, it's crazy. The uh, It's the thrust to weight. It's their specific excess power, whatever you want to call it. I just remembered Edwards. They have a – so Edwards is the place they used to land the shuttle, right, the space shuttle back in the day. And, and a lot of test evaluation goes on there. So they have these very long runways. One runway is two miles long. So imagine being in a Viper with only a, a fuel tank. Starting at the, the beginning of the, the brick one, we'll call it, of the two-mile-long runway, I will uh, run up to, let's say, 90. Anyway, I basically run up halfway or really 90% or so, check the brakes, check the hydraulics, and then boom, go. And I would do a low transition, which is going to be where you uh, just get above the ground. You bring up the gear and the flaps auto, you know, um, fare if you will, come up. And then I have the, to the rest of the runway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically – as soon as, I think it's 92%, you check the oil or something like that. You release the brakes and you select afterburner or reheat right away. Point being is at the end of the runway, I would be about 450 or so knots. Crikey. And then I would pull and I'd go straight up. Bloody hell. That, exactly. That's exactly right. I, I have never, that's, I mean, that's entertainment you can't even pay for. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no roller coaster that does that for you. So... Honestly, the, uh, the the sheer performance of the F-16 is amazing. Not the not the cockpit uh, ergonomics, instrumentation, avionics, none of that stuff. Just the sheer power is pretty stunning. So, do you currently fly at the moment? Uh, I am. Let's instead of being in between jobs, I'm in between cockpits right now. So, no. Um, I unfortunately with the F-18 at the depot, my last assignment, I had some uh, close calls. I'll yeah. say. 
I'll just leave it at that. But uh, my wife and my my parents and my in-laws, they they were pretty concerned for me. So I'm going to grant them this less stress by just being on the ground and flying commercial air to different places. Awesome. So Sunshine, where can we find you online? Uh, Pretty much I will reside on the Fighter Pilot Podcast Facebook page and our website. So on our Facebook page, I highly recommend if you guys are into looking at different aviation pictures, if you will, every week we post a picture and our following is very technically savvy. And I'll ask just a few very leading questions, we'll call it. And it usually provides a lot of, as a catalyst, let's say, for a lot of very good discussions. So Fighter Pilot Podcast page, a webpage, excuse me, and also the Facebook page is where you can find me. Brilliant. So overall, Sunshine, did you enjoy your U.S. Navy fighter career? Mike, I absolutely did. No regrets. 25 years of one amazing experience after another, and it's all in the defense or the service of this amazing nation in which I grew up. Like A pleasure to have you on the show, and hopefully we can get you back on. Thank you, Mike, for having me. I absolutely love Air Crew Interview, and yeah, hopefully we can get some more synergy working between the two podcasts, if you will. Absolutely. Thank you very much. <laughs>